induce something which in my world corresponds to that famous head, uh, head of the horse in your bed from Godfather, the offer you cannot refuse, namely that in hmm? this last film, to the, uh, to the wonder, that Ben Affleck, just prior to making love to Olga Kudilienko, the game of beauty is reading Heidegger's Shining Child. And I immediately imagine back if this is the offer that, sorry, again someone will protest for politically incorrect, but if the price to sit with her is sitting in the side, would you do it? And, uh, uh, you take the Fifth Amendment. No, you will not answer because. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, sorry for tasteless remarks. Let's do today, I will try to do some consistent, serious talk again. What I, and on the last session, I will do what I was also promising from the beginning uh, uh, short, condensed version of a line of thought that I have in the manuscript on Hegel, the end of art, where was Hegel wrong, can we outdo Hegel through Hegel himself? My opponent, opponent, okay, in a Hegelian opponent, uh, Robert Pippin, in his nonetheless interesting short book on Hegel and art, uh, where, you know, he tries to do something quite wonderful too to show in Hegel's, to demonstrate how the shift from this, as we call it, representational, traditional to modern, so-called abstract art, can be perfectly formulated in Hegelian terms. In other words, that Hegel, when he put, proposed the thesis on the end of art, First, he, okay, let me nonetheless improvise a little bit of this because I will keep, stick to my promise to you. Any big line of thought that I didn't succeed because I talked too much about other things to sell to you, to present to you here, will be given to Ed or to some of your slaves, they are called today research assistants, whatever, no? and, uh, and further. Okay, uh, so uh, the idea is this one, very nice one, that uh, uh, the way to move further than Hegel is not in this postmodern, whatever way, you know, there are phenomena that Hegel couldn't grasp and so on. Oh, a much nicer paradox is to demonstrate, and again, Pippin does this quite nicely, in that short book on, on uh, Hegel and modern art, that there are phenomena where Hegel was not Hegelian enough, precisely, to grasp them. And I think the reason I, for example, with regard to so-called abstract art, insofar as we take Hegel as an idealist, not idealist in this stupid sense, there, there are some ideas up there on some platonic heaven, but idealist in a much more elementary sense that even our most elementary experience of reality, its materiality and so on, is in some sense notionally or conceptually mediated. 
No, I mean, not go into this distinction. That's why I use them interchangeably between notion and concept. But let's forget about this now. Uh, the point is thus that when Hegel, for Hegel, modernity means the end of art. Now, before we condemn this as who Hegel's arrogant stupidity, Hegel uses this wonderful metaphor. We may still find it attractive, fascinating, but our knees no longer go down. You know, like, what is missing for Hegel in modernity is that, let's call it naively, absolute respect for art. Art, not just as an amusement or pleasant or even noble experience, but art as, to put it in traditional terms, contact with access to the absolute. Truth itself reveals itself there, as it was. Let's leave aside if this was true, not so much in medieval times as in ancient Greece. You know this Hegel's great scheme, ancient Greece, even their religion, he calls it religion of art. That is to say, their privilege of ancient Greeks contact with the absolute was not, was neither religion nor science or metaphysics, pure thinking, but art, artistic experience. And there is something to say for this, that even for the so-called ordinary people, you know that the tragedies, public staging, staging of tragedies was originally at least the sacred event, where, as it were, community restated its bond, its what it's founded on, although incidentally I cannot you know that a great friend told me, and not your wife, not Diana, but another one, that if you look, and people don't like to talk about it in detail, about this great, uh, how do you call it, Patrium Greek theaters, in the first rows for the rich, you have a hole in the center of the seat, of the seat. In other words, so that you are not, it wasn't necessary for you if you had a need to go to the toilet, it was there. And I like this, so when they speak of catharsis, purifying yourself, you are not to do the spiritual catharsis, but, but okay, more seriously, now the simple thing for you would be to say, Henry is exaggerating and so on. No, I think it was even more true. It became even more true after Hegel's death. And if you want really to see a clear example of what Hegel meant, my name is arise in post-Hegelian, let's call it naively, scientific worldview. Well, okay, do this. Take a look at those cognitive scientists, for example, who are precisely not to primitive, but who try to, who emphasize that they have an authentic feeling of art and so on and so on. I know two, uh, Dam uh, Damasio, you know, the, the Portuguese guy who did all this stuff about what is the self, and maybe up to a point, uh, Daniel Dennett. But the problem is, if you read it closely, that with all their respect for this, you can see how it's really irre irrelevant. 
They just want to display how cultured they are. It doesn't matter. The worst example is, in one of the Masio's books, he wants to make a case of how our ears function. And then, of course, he cannot abstain from saying, do you know maybe her name? I always forget, Maria something. There is a very famous Portuguese piano player, a woman, and he said, a week ago, the pianist uh, uh, visited me at my house, and while she was playing some wonderful Schubert piano music, I was thinking about, fuck it, it's totally irrelevant. It's just excessive boasting. Or even guys who really want to do something with art, like Oliver Sacks, not sex, S-A-C-K, you know, his wife for a uh, even with him, you can feel this, that it's wonderful, he really admires it, but it's ultimately irrelevant. And even if they praise it as, you know, like uh, ennobling you, good moral influence, uh, not even to mention sublime, exalted feelings, here Heidegger was right. The moment you think art in the terms of feelings, experiences, and so on, you are lost. Precisely, art is art as long as it aims at this, as it were, contact with the absolute. And here, against even Heidegger, who, as Pippin put it nicely, wants to teach us how to learn to, to, to bow down, to, to kneel again to the art, you can see how it doesn't really work. I don't have time to go into it. Just you know what always shocked me when I read Heidegger's detailed interpretations of some poems, you know, usually Helderin and then all the other guys, Stefan Georg, Rilke, and so on. Although he all the time wants to play the card of art, uh, displays its own truth, and so on, but it's always Nonetheless, what he de facto does is reduce art to a messenger, transmitter of some truth which can be much more directly <coughs> explained in his philosophy. This is why also, if you notice this, Heidegger, whenever he reads other poems, poets, and even more philosophers, I am not aware of ever trying really to read penetrate the entire line of thought, or even less, line of a poem. It's usually just a couple of lines where then he applies his machinery. So again, in a way, Hegel was right. Even if we admire art today and so on, are sincerely exalted, it's no longer the absolute contact with truth. Uh, but where is Hegel? as it were, too short. I think Pippin has a point here. Uh, Hegel is too short because for him, he cannot imagine, let's call it the non-representative art. Hegel is very careful in analyzing also the form. My God, that's the ABC of dialectics, no, that form matters. Form is never just a neutral container of some truth. Truth has to be inscribed into the form itself. Even you find some hints in Hegel of how 
when you have, let's say, a certain content, narrative, even idea, and artistic form, Hegel even goes so far as to hint that the truth is in that form itself. That, you know, form in authentic art is never just the staging presentation of idea, but usually form implicitly shows the limitation what's wrong in that idea itself. For example, the most beautiful example I can imagine now briefly is Hegel on Antigone. You know Hegel's thesis that the Greek theater moved historically from tragedy to comedy. But Hegel does not take this just in this large historical sense that in late antiquity or in Rome the real thing was a comedy. Tragedy was no longer possible. But he locates in a wonderful detail in his reading of Antigone, he locates this shift from tragedy to comedy already into Sophocles' Antigone. You know where? Maybe you know because I've written briefly about it, but in my next book I want to expand it because it's really wonderful. You know, when Antigone is excluded from public space, finds herself as a living dead, Antigone, in her monologue, does what? She compares herself to some mythic creatures and so on, like, oh, I'm like that, I don't know God as a figure of meat who suffered a lot. And Hegel does something wonderful. He says, I can say it now viciously, Hegel, into modern experience, that she's already doing her PR, building her TV. It is as if the only way to, uh, it's no longer this pure, unreflected suffering. But I suffer, but let me think for posterity, how would I present my suffering, you know? She's staging for posterity an image of herself to be effective, and Hegel wonderfully says, this is uh, the moment of comedy, you know? It's as if you have a tragic actor who cries there, and then with the hint says, did I do this well? Did it convince you? Should I do more? That uh, Hegel had this wonderful idea, which I think found its full realization only in one of the great contributions of American TV to world culture, I Love Lucy. Isn't it a specific? You even have a term for it. You know how, like, uh, that precise moment of when she or someone else says something stupid or has a stupid experience, she breaks this elementary rule of realistic cinema or TV and with this strange look looks directly into the camera. Again, you see, this is the comic. In comedy, as Hegel puts it, the gap that separates a person from the actor is displaced into this person itself, in the sense that this you know, which is why, and I agree here with Hegel implicitly, he doesn't say this, of course, that every lover of theater should run as far away as possible from actor studio methods, you know, this total realistic... No, you always have to keep a distance. That's what you find in Brecht, and I like so much, you know, this impossible position of commenting on... You know, you know what's a typical Brechtian scene? An actor enters the stage and says, I am a capitalist. 
Today you will see, I will try to approach that worker and confuse him, corrupt him, so that, you know, that you, at the same time, you adopt the position of meta-language. As if you do what you do, but you add comment to it. And in this sense, so many things wrong to say, uh, time to develop. In this sense, I claim even Stalinism was a comedy, Stalinist trials, be careful. I don't mean by this it was comedy where you laugh. Again, as I already developed here, I think the first time or when, uh, when things are truly horrible, you can only do it in a comedy. This is the deep necessity of beneath the simple fact that the all really authentic films about Holocaust tend to be <coughs> comedies. There is something false in doing a Holocaust strategy. Not because things were not serious there for the victims, but because they were too serious. You know why? What is a tragedy? I am accused. I said, no, never, I heroically shoot me. You know, in, in order to have a tragedy, the victim is still needed to, how should you put it, keep intact his her space of dignity from where he or she can heroically assume his her tragic fate. My point is that imagine again in a film where let's say a Jewish torturer violates or rapes in Auschwitz a Jewish girl and she heroically says no you can do whatever you want with me but you will never break my spirit and all that bullshit and so on no you see, you give too much credit to the Nazis if you do this. You underestimate the level of terror there. The terror, the true terror of terror, as it were, was that precisely you were deprived even of this minimal dignity. That's why, again, only a comedy works. Of course, it's not a comedy where you laugh, you know. But you must move beyond, you must move beyond tragedy. That's why, incidentally, I know I mentioned this many times, for example, I don't like, uh, 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 I didn't mean that one as a great film, uh, 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 La Vita e Bella. Uh, my God, I forgot the guys. Sorry? Yeah, 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 but, um, sorry? Then Roberto Benigni, yeah. You know why? Because at the end, it gets too close to the tragic mood, it gets sentimental. You know, you are not supposed to laugh at the very end. You remember when the father dies and so on. And I'm sorry, but I hope at least I didn't mention this here, this thing here, to make another. I like to test this experiment. I will not bore you now. Let's say you all know the story of the film. Would you agree or not that uh, there is a simple way to make the film really tragic? Tragic, not tragic, even beyond that. You know what happens here? All this idea, his small son <coughs> buys this story that this is not just a big competition to survive. Father presents to his son a story which should make it easier for his son to sustain, to endure Auschwitz, telling him it's just a big competition in the end, you get the prize and so on. Now imagine just a slight change at the end, just when they are taking father to be shot, really, somehow he understands that 
the son also knew that in the same way that father was mm. pretending that this is just a big competition in order to make it easier to the son, the son played the same game with him. He knew it all the time, but he just pretended to be a naive child who believes in it in order to make it easier for his father. That would be a much more hopeless, desperate solution. Why? Because there is another way of cheating that. It's not so much at the empirical level, what they are doing there, but you know, as Lacan, Lacan usually says that comedy is a phallic affair, but what does he mean by this? He somewhere puts it in very simple terms, that by phallic he means this unlimited vitality, you know? It's like uh, 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 Tom and Jerry, which are another story, even prefabric. But whatever, the idea is this one. You know, these adventure stories of heroes where no matter what, in what dangers they are, in a comical way, you know, they will always survive. They will always find a way out. And precisely, I think this is what he does. He, he Benini transposes this into Auschwitz, as if. Roberto Benini is this phallic figure of, in whatever trouble he is, sometimes, somehow he finds his way out, squeezing out in a comical way. I think uh, the best answer to this would have been what I found years ago, maybe you also find it today, it, there was in ex Yugoslavia the avant-garde, some circle in Zagreb, capital of Croatia, of avant-garde, uh, 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 how do you call it, what is Disney doing, cartoons, uh, uh, and okay, what they did is they took a standard Tom and Jerry cartoon, you know well, you know the basic mystery there, the undeadness of them, for example, Jerry or, or uh, Tom can be, I don't know, overrun by a bus, uh, cut up in pieces, magically in next scene they are again there, you know. And uh, incidentally, that's why I, although I hate the movies, moderately like, uh, I hate them ideologically, but in Home Alone 1 and 2, you know, the last quarter of an hour, I'm primitive, so you know where Joe Pesci has been placed one of them, you know, he puts his head, which is his head, into the toilet, of course, the small kid already put uh, gasoline into the toilet so his head explodes. He comes out, he's just burned here and so on, you know, this art deadness. I think, again, that uh, Lacan, in his reading of Kant with Sade, points out how you find the same mystery in Sade. The victims in Sade, novels of Marquis de Sade, are tortured endlessly, but Magically, they not only survive, but they usually, the women even retain their, their beauty to the earth and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, back to my point, comedy, tragedy. For Hegel also, modern art can only be a comedy. And, okay, let's do it today, I will sell you something more interesting in two days. What I find so fascinating with Hegel is that, but again, the limit of Hegel. For Hegel, we live in a reconciled world. He doesn't mean by this everything is okay, but simply what Fukuyama would have called post-historical 
world. We no longer live in an era where, and that's the total stuff of tragedy for Hegel, where some kind of radical split, self-alienation, antagonism, defines our predicament. I think the proof of this is precisely against Auschwitz, because as we all know, the fundamental tragic move from Oedipus to what Hegel wants to say is that you as the hero, the tragic hero, is exposed to some external calamity, but then the properly tragic moment is not simply the moment when he loses, but when he has to assume has to realize that he, he was somehow co-responsible for this loss. That in some sense, he deserved it, like Oedipus, you know. He didn't know it, but he did sleep with his mother, kill his father, and so on and so forth. So we have, as Hegel would have put it, this moment of recognition that in the substance, the other, which ruined you, you have to discover yourself. That the external conflict is the conflict with yourself. Now, precisely, I claim, this emphatically doesn't hold, doesn't uh, help for Auschwitz. Because what would you say to the Jews that in being uh, brutally destroyed by the Nazis, you were effectively self-destroying yourself? You know? No, it was really external in that case. You shouldn't, again, include it into this tragic, uh, tragic self-relationship. So again, uh, Hegel knew this, that we live in a post-tragic era. And he was well aware that today, even if the stories are tragic, they are ultimately comedies. Comedies in the sense that we can have terrible fate, but in to put it in very naive terms, in our individual fate, our fiasco, we no longer can say that some world historical antagonism is being mirrored. You know, like in Antigone, for example, it's clear that what, it's not just Antigone destroyed by Creon and then Creon destroying himself in a pure tragic way. This is another interesting story, you know that. Antigone is not at all, in this strict sense, a tragic figure. The only truly tragic figure is Creon, who, as it were, at the end gets his message. Uh, no, as you say here, gets his come up on his But back to it, even if horrible things happen to you, again, you don't find the echo of this larger world historical conflict. And, uh, okay. What Hegel didn't do, this is his limitation. It's to see, to discern the tragic potential, tragic, terrifying, horrible, antagonistic, of our own post-tragic modern world. And this, I was quite nicely surprised, Robert Pippin develops this in quite a wonderful way. Where, when he points out how, for Hegel, our post-revolutionary universe, our, I mean, his, is basically a non-antagonistic one. Misfortunes happen, but not at that level. Not 
world historical dysfunctions. It's just bad luck or whatever. From the world historical perspective, it's irrelevant. Now, uh, uh, here things get really interesting because, and I will give you this text 10 through 10 and so on, uh, that uh, when you read Hegel's descriptions of what especially literature or theater can be today, I wonder if it will click. You recognize something the way it did at least to me. He says <coughs> it's no longer world historical tension, it's just our ordinary humanity in all its complications, luck here, bad luck there, all these ultimately non-important conflicts which can be personally tragic. Like, for example, you know, even in Hemingway, I don't know why I never had a great tolerance for Hemingway. <laughs> one of the worst novels of all time is, uh, 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 what's that called, the stupid Man and the Sea. <laughs> you know, as if, well, okay, he's trying to, to catch the fucking fish. So, already well, there, I think that, of course, I'm not a idiot. The idea is that it's an allegory of, yeah, yeah, let's struggle with the point of it. But it doesn't work. Something didn't work for me there. Although humans are now slowly learning how to commercialize art, you know that they. I read somewhere they, I hope they paid it, some American agency advised them. They alleged, you know, that that old man then returns to a boy, as a young boy. They discovered now an old guy who the claim is that original young boy. You know, I love them. I, I, <laughs> sorry, but let's go on. So, uh, uh, this is what, so even, you see, uh, in his early novels of Hemingway, it works better. What do I mean by this? Remember, not so much Farewell to Arms, but also his two early novels. Farewell to Arms of Hemingway and The Sun Also Rises. In The Sun Also Rises, sorry, I'm a primitive guy, I translate it into cinema. Tyrone Power lives with Ava Gardner, but in World War I, some grenade hit him there, so he is impotent, and so on and so on. Or, similarly, in Farewell to Arms, you know, when the couple successfully escapes to Switzerland, she is dying of consumption, and so on and so on. Here, it, the writer still attempts to present this personal misfortune. Let's say the hero of The Sun Also Rises, his impotence, as an allegory of a deeper importance, uh, limitation of our times. Although already there, I doubt if it really works. But uh, a post-tragic, post-modern view would have been simply that precisely no. It was a stupid grenade, it just happened. In the same way that you can gain uh, uh, 100 million from lottery, you, you know, there is no deeper resonance in it. It's just, again, this irrelevant comedies of daily life. One gets cancer, the other has an unfortunate love affair, a third guy gets or loses his job, all this stuff. What is Hegel describing here? I think Hegel was the first theorist of our TV series. 
Isn't this the best description you can imagine, for example, of Seinfeld? No world historical conflict, just this tiny problem, that tiny problem, and so on and so on. So I think this would be nice if some of you want to do some seminar or whatever, like Hegel as a theoretician of telenovelas or whatever, you know. Because again, the point of all this Seinfeld or whatever, which curb your enthusiasm, I claim, is already a tiny little bit more serious. It's almost, I wouldn't say a tragic conflict, but what Larry David is doing there, you know, the way he always gets into the same type of trouble. There is a hint there at some conflict, but returning to Hegel, so that's the first limitation of Hegel. He saw this, our universe, as universe of these ridiculous accidents and so on, but at the same time, he was not able to see the potentially terrifying dimension, like that, you know, a comedy which can be more desperate than tragedy, and that's why it has to remain a comedy. That's why, as I've written already in my books, for example, make, make the test yourself if you don't believe me. Uh, I reread recently again, looking for some quotes, Primo Levis, if this is a man. And sorry, but some scenes there, you cannot but take them as comical. Precisely in their total despair. For example, the famous scene of what they call selectia, selection. You know that once every month or two months, all the prisoners had to run in front of an SS doctor, and it was done expressway. You had to be naked, you run in front of the doctor, and the doctor gave you like maximum one, one and a half seconds. Just not even name, you didn't have names. They called your number, oh, running, and up, uh, and then of course, haha. It's really like God doing predestination, you know? <laughs> he put it, your, your number, into one of the two columns. Let him leave to work or guest chamber. There, no? But the way Levy describes how prisoners were preparing themselves for this exam, like the whole point was that the doctor should perceive you as relatively strong and healthy. So how to do this? They were using some red color or pinching themselves, you know, to appear not to pay or doing, trying to blow their stomach like, no, I'm not as stark as that. Admit it, there is something in the way, or this idea that it got often totally wrong, you know. You uh, run in front of the doctor, well prepared, Doctor sneezed for a moment, he didn't see you, but doctor was too lazy. Never he said, okay, run again. No, he just said, okay, let's put here or there this guy. This total ridicule of the situation. That was comedy at its, at its most uh, horrible. At the <coughs> end, didn't see this, and here, uh, so, this was the first limitation of Hegel. He didn't see the radical, call it whatever you want, alienation, uh, antagonism in modern society. At the same time, as I think that, Hegel was not idealist enough in the sense that, uh, for example, let's take abstract painting from a Hegelian 
how could it appear to our Hegelian view? That abstract painting doesn't mean ideas are out, open yourself to the materiality. No, the point of abstract painting is that even if you drop representation, already the elementary forms are, as it were, mediated by spirit. There is a spiritual content in them. For example, if you read, I don't appreciate him too much, my theory is Malevich, but nonetheless, the great text on the, what is it, on the spiritual in art by Kandinsky. That's the whole point of him, that already in this most basic tensions between colors, elementary forms, and so on, they are already, to put it in Hegelian terms, spiritually mediated. Yes? Now, are you saying in a way that <coughs> Hegel himself sees the limit of dialectics and is kind of a proto-post-structuralist illusion? I wouldn't say the limit of dialectics. I would even totally naively say more the limits of his dialectics. Because I think that you can precisely see that he, if by dialectics we mean uh, the, the notional mediation, that Hegel didn't see dialectical mediation where it already was at the level of pure non-representational form. So that was the first thing. The second thing, he didn't see alienation or antagonism, whatever, in our uh, societies. And now that would have been the big question that we should address and that I think Pippin does not explicitly address it, although he comes very close to it. How, or rather, why are the two connected? Why is it that the alienation, or whatever, let's put it in very elementary terms, what do we experience as being fundamentally wrong in our modern lives? Why is it that, and this is a historical fact, that to really, at an appropriate artistic way, to stage, grasp this, you cannot any longer do it in the traditional representational way. Why? This would be, you know how Hegel, Hegel's first limitation is connected with the second limitation. His failure to grasp the entire. And Pippin does here a wonderful work by focusing on Claude, Claude Manet, his famous paintings, you know. Uh, not splendor in the grass, that's the picture that my generation liked when we were young, but uh, lunch on, lunch in the grass and all those. Well, he points very nicely this paradoxes of Manet, the first great modernist, although this is a lesson to be debated. I here agree with T.M. Clark that the first truly modernist painting is uh, David. You know, the death of Marat. You maybe know, you know, after the French Revolution, after Marat was killed, you must know, he paid, he was practically a state artist, you know, on orders from the parents on. He did the painting which is absolutely extraordinary. Not because what is there, but because what isn't there. Just check it on the web. On the lower half of the painting, you see Marat dead in a bathtub. No, he wasn't a lazy guy. He had some skin disease. He had to spend most of the time within a hot water in the bathtub. And then all 
the upper half of the painting, even more, is just black. It's just black surface. Okay, you can maybe narratively justify that it was simply the black wall, but it certainly functions in a very strange way. What this... So, you know why? Because what I tried to prove is that this is why Jacobin's in this work, the official, as it were, party painting, were not yet totalitarians. Would you agree or not? Let me just, let me show it to you. So, uh, okay, that's the painting. Here you have the Bafta Marat there, of course, just signing or finishing some stupid declaration for freedom. And all this is just blackness. Now, in a communist or social realist painting, you can imagine what would have to be done. As in uh, some, how do you call that, that uh, cloud in uh, comics and so on, uh, here it would have been a kind of a cloud to fill this blackness where, you know, something like the dying Mara is imagining the future happy French people singing or whatever, you know. But he precisely didn't do this, it's blackness, the void remains. You can see that, that Malevich, for his famous black, square, white, or whatever, knew what he was doing, you know, because you know who did in literature what Malevich did with that painting? My favorite one, I think I mentioned him to you, the writer, Andrei Platorov, who in his foundation piece precisely presents just this black, Boy, they are building the foundation for some super palace of the workers. Of course, the palace is never uh, brought up. Okay, so uh, let's go uh, then back. What you find in Manet, in his famous paintings, for example, that lady who sells drinks behind the bar in Folie Berger, whatever, another famous one, it's one thing which is crucial. First, the lady looks, or the, the typical Manet individual painted, looks directly at you, but at the same time it has this famous distracted view, as if her mind is somewhere else, you know. So it's this paradox that at the same time you are directly addressed, the person is looking at you, let me put it this way, looking at you but not seeing this confused position, and in a very nice way, Pippi presents this as the fundamental alienation, we lost our buildings, our precise position in society, and Pippi is here, I think, even too, too pseudo-Marxist critical, because what he doesn't see is that this gaze, dislocated gaze, you know, subject is perplexed, doesn't know where he or she is, looks at you but doesn't see you. This is also, in, if you turn it around, this is also freedom, modern freedom. It's precisely this that we do not have a fixed place within uh, social order and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, that's okay, and again, going, uh, going back to Hegel, so there is a type of subjectivity here, the modern painting which maybe was inaccessible, <coughs> an approach to it. Why not? 
Now comes a wonderful thing that I think one should supplement feeling. That exactly the same thing as with so-called abstract art, namely that Hegel missed it because in a way he wasn't idealist enough. He didn't see, let's call it the spiritual mediation of even the most elementary experience of colors, shapes, and so on. That's one point. The other point, and that's why I think with all criticism that I have of him, Marx did something great in his capital still. You know what Marx did there? There is what? When Hegel dealt with social production and so on, he did say some intelligent things. Of course, he was reading Adam Smith, Invisible Hand of Market, all that. But Hegel's global representation of social production was still basically that of pre-capitalist, how do you call artisan, artisanal logic, you know. There is a market, I work, you work. But this monstrosity in conceptual terms of capital, where it's not just I work, you work, we exchange objects, but there is an abstract self-reproductive movement of capital which runs it all. And which this movement of capital, its self-reproduction, is purely virtual, immaterial. Capital, capitalism, and Marx knew this, is the most, in this sense, the most idealist order of social production you can imagine. Because real movement, what I am doing, what you are doing, is dominated by this, uh, you know, speculative movement, uh, capital, and so on, which is purely virtual, which is coincidentally another conclusion to draw from here. I totally disagree with moralistic criticism of capitalism. Oh, people think just about their profit or whatever. What, uh, what, what, they're egotists. We need more care of the others. No. Capitalism, if anything crazy as it may sound, is precisely not egotist enough in what sense? My God, Walter Benjamin knew this when he said capitalism uh, is a new form of religion. A true capitalist works day and night, is ready even to lose, to risk his personal happiness and so on, workaholic, just that the capitalist reproducing itself. So to be good ecologists, we don't need to appeal to some higher, higher, uh, higher notion of uh, take care of the community. No, but just to your elementary egotism. Do you want your children to survive or whatever? You know, how that you should do it. So, okay, so let me go on. Uh, it's interesting here, books are written by it already in the 50s and later, as how the conceptual structure of ma capital of Marx is basically the structure of Hegelian idealist logic. For example, when Marx describes the passage from money to capital, it's precisely the passage from substance to subject. Substance is for Hegel this flat universality. Subject is substance which actively reproduces itself. So, and it's true, as Marx put it, capital is money which self-reproduces itself through 
through, through productive investment, blah, blah, blah. So what I'm trying to say here is simply this, that Hegel precisely wasn't Hegelian enough here. What Marx did, and of course, things are in reality much more complex, because like, the question is precisely, is it just that we simply should extend Hegel, or does this extension, in this case, unearthing the Hegelian nature of modern art or of capitalism, or does this compel us to do something nonetheless undermine the Hegelian system the way we have it? But nonetheless, you see the nice paradox here. How? Uh, the problem with Hegel, and I think the critique of Hegel should begin here, that he missed, as it were, the Hegelian aspect, precisely, of some modern phenomena. That's his limitation. Yeah? So in this way, are we talking about like structural dialectic or structural causality that is being missed and the missing of the... You can say, yes, structure. Okay, you know, when you say structural dialectics, my association is then loyalty-ser, uh, over-determination, and so on. Okay, again, we don't have time to go into it now, but although I think that the notion of over-determination is an extremely important one, nonetheless, one should be extremely precise here. You know, it's the same problem as the one with another notion, which was totally misunderstood in cinema studies and elsewhere, the notion of future, future, you know. Uh, as to uh, over-determination, listen, people usually just uh, fuck off. Okay, see you later. No, I, I knew that it has to leave. That uh, over-determination, yes. You know, people just take it like the situation is complex, everything is determined by everything else, we never get simple causality and so on and so on. No, it's not just that. This is still what Hegel would have called Vesivir. Overdetermination is something much more refined. It's that. It's not simply that the totality is never a simple causal totality where one principle runs it all, but that basically everything influences retroactively everything else. No. It has a certain structure of self-relation. For example, Marx has formulates this nicely when in his introduction to Brutalism Manuscript came that the four, this cycle of production, distribution, exchange, and consumation, or whatever, at the end, that these are four elements, but they are all elements of the productive process. You see, so that production is at the same time one of its species and the totality of species. This is so that Overdetermination means that I am doubly inscribed, that me as a particular element overdetermine my own universality. Or, as Marx put it in another way, that uh, uh, among, in every properly dialectical process, when you have many species or kinds of uh, some totality, there is always one species which is not simply a particular species, but which, as it were, embodies directly the genus, the, the universality as such. This, here we approach the difficult Hegelian topic of concrete, of concrete uh, 
universality. For example, Marx, the elementary example of Marx, he says that, for example, uh, that in every era, a certain field of production overdetermines the totality. For example, for Marx, in traditional society, it's more or less agriculture. And for Marx, precisely in modern societies, industrial capitalism, it's industrial production. What does Marx mean with this? Not the simple fact that more people are employed in production, but in the sense that even, even the spheres of production, which are not directly those of industrial factory production, are more and more structured-like as the factory production. Now, things here go even further. We don't have time to go into this today. Namely, in the direction of how, for Marx, and this is the basic Hegelian rule, in every totality, for this totality to totalize itself, sorry for this tautology, you need an element which presents what is excluded by this totality. You need the point of suture, precisely. And I've repeated it many times, maybe I should repeat it now clearly. For example, and this will be a critique of Marx. You know, Marx distinguishes basically five or six modes of production. Primitive mode of production, so-called Asian mode, Asiatic despotism, antique slavery, feudalism, capitalism, and whatever it will come, haha, socialism, communism, later. It's clear where is the limitation here. It was shown wonderfully by some critical Marxists that what Marx calls Asiatic mode of production is really, it appears to be one positive mode among others, but it's really a name for all that that doesn't fit Marx's general category of modes of production. In other words, the original series was simply uh, uh, primitive societies, and I agree also with those critics who, in a very nice way, like Kojin Karatani, my Japanese friend, point out how uh, Marx, he mentions it briefly somewhere, but he totally underestimated, angles even more, uh, this, the mega-importance of this big shift from nomadic societies to permanent, when they start building cities, and so, which all happens in so-called primitive societies, you know. Okay, but my point is this one. How did Marx, in a caricatural way, of course, effectively proceed? He effectively had this series, as I mentioned. Primitive societies, slave societies, ancient societies, feudalism, capitalism, communism, or so forth. Then he noticed that there are some weird societies which somehow do not fit any of these categories. And they are from all around, like uh, their ancient Inca, pre-colonial, uh, ancient Egypt elements there, then ancient China, and so on. And he proposed the term uh, Asiatic mode of production, whose actual content is just all, all societies which do not fit my, my skill. You know, it's a little bit like 
that famous quote from uh, Borges, I think, quote uh, that you find at the very beginning of uh, Michel Foucault's The Order of Things, Le Moyen Le Chaucer, and first I wanted to make fun of you stupid Americans and Englishmen that why did you change the title? But then I totally changed my position, you were right, because I learned in a book by Paul Foucault that originally the name was Lord of the Shores, and that lately he found it not poetic enough and he exchanged it for Le Moy and Le Shores. But what I want to say is, you know, there, Borges uh, says that, uh, of course, it's a joke, that he found some ancient uh, uh, list of all dogs in Chinese empire, which are this, that kind, the dogs who belong to the emperor, dogs who are stray dogs, lost, totally. And then at the end, all dogs, as a category, all dogs who are not included in this <laughs> classification. But the whole point of Hegel and Marx for severity is that you need such a the structuralist term would have been in French, le tenant du vide, the placeholder, the element whose function is just to hold the place of the void. You need it. Point de capiton? Sorry? Point de capiton? Yes and no. Ha, we don't have time. Here things get, go, get so complicated, you know, because Lacan was precisely in those years he proposed the notion of Juan de Capitone in, of course, in Seminar 3 on Psychosis. Then he used it for some time and gently replaced it first with uh, not uh, uh, ideal e ego, but ego ideal symbolic point, then with, of course, at the end you get master signifier. No? But again, it, get, it gets very complex, because again, if you read Lacan, you know what's the problem with him? I was like this, he cheats all the time. Cheats in the sense that he, even within the same seminar, that's why Lacan is difficult to read, he changes his position, but as it were, never admits it. Especially dangerous are moments when he says, Okay, now New Year begins, I will just briefly recapitulate what I did the last year. At that point, you can be sure he radically changes his position. You know, for example, in one of his most famous seminars, Seminar 7, I've said it for a long time, The Ethics of Psychoanalysis, there Lacan developed his notions of Kant with Sartre. It also of this relationship between law and desire. And at the very end of the seminar, he says, okay, now I will return to what I said at the beginning. Fuck it, no, he totally changes crucially. Because at the beginning, it's clear that he links the interconnection between law and desire. In the simple polynia, I'm referring to St. Paul, sense of prohibition itself creates the desire to transgress. Something is prohibited, so I want it. But at the end, he does something totally different. He elevates desire itself into the supreme law, as it were. It's something, again, it's something totally different. For example, Antigone, 
voor lachom. Ger desire is ger lop, ger lop, ok, ger maxime, rose river, en so on, en so on. You know, so it's, it's a different point. And this is how we arrive at his motto of psychoanalysis, ne passe des sur désir. Do not compromise your desire. That's precisely the psychoanalytic, uh, how should I call it, uh, categorical imperative. And that's where he sees the connection between Kantian ethics and Sartre. The point is not that Kant is a sadist. I mean, you can argue this, that you know this Kant's absolute insistence on follow, follow the law, whatever it means, blah, blah. That, you know, just think about, for example, a severe teacher who compels you, bombs, bombards you with, uh, with uh, horrible demands, but at the same time, sadistically enjoys your failure, no? So, Lacan's point is not that Kant is a sadist, but a much more difficult, subtle one, that Marquis de Sade was already a Kantian. In what sense? First, it's one evidence. If you read Marquis de Sade as his most systematic, like uh, uh, 120 days in Sodom, it's totally, it's totally something mechanic, it's beyond pleasures. It becomes, the more you read it, the more it becomes a kind of a totally mechanic machine. You know, like, it's 600 cases, like, figurations of an orgy. And, okay, at the beginning, it's still some kind of a narrative, but somewhere after 300, I think, it's just like, I don't know, I improvise, 410. Take a dog, two women, a cow, and a bird. <laughs> then next one, take two dogs, two women, and one man. You know, it, it, you lose. So, as Lacan notes it intelligently, in the past for Kant, the basic point is that the proper ethics should be without parts. You shouldn't enjoy it, you know. But it should be purely cold mechanical. As Kant put it, you should do it for the sake of duty, even if you do the right thing. But you find some satisfaction in doing it, it's not an ethical act. And then Friedrich Schiller, who I don't like very much, he was the father of fascism in aesthetics, but he wrote nonetheless a nice short poem making fun of Kant, where he describes a good woman who does something nice to her to foreign children, but then she complains, but what can I do? I like helping people and I'm no longer counts as moral moral so on, you know. So again <laughs> the point is that many readers notice this that sexuality inside is totally apathetic. It's a kind of a really 50 shades or 600 shades of grey. <laughs> it's a totally... And then you have another element which is so important where Kant really... Sorry, Saad really becomes a Kantian. You know, Saad... It's 
question to what extent, but there is a certain development in some, to what extent you can really project it, but it is a kind of a shift in sub from simple, vulgar mechanics, so-called materialism, to something much more uncannily radical. Sub began with this brutal naturalism. He said, torturing, killing is natural, na nature is doing it, so if you want to be a harmonious part of nature, we should not just procreate and so on, but also kill, torture, whatever. That, okay, but this is still at the level of La Métrie, Holbach, and all those, uh, all those guys, where incidentally you do find incredible obscenities if you look at them. For example, just read it. My God, I don't think in our politically correct times it will be soon prohibited to read. Denis Diderot, Le Bijou Parlant, I think. Pearls which talk. It's, of course, vagina. And it's a whole treatise taken very seriously where he claims that, I think I already mentioned this here, that every woman talks with two voices. One voice is of her brains, where she lies all the time, you cannot rely on her, hysterical, cheating, and with her vagina, which of course always tells the truth, which is always the same. I want sex, I want sex, I want... It, you find such vulgarities there already. But back to Sab. Uh, so we have this brutal materialist Sab. We should do like nature. We are part... Nature is, it's this primitive Aristotelian image, nature as a network of generation and corruption. Things rise, things disintegrate, new things arise, and we should simply be part of this cycle. But then something extremely interesting occurred to Sala, that to be part of this circular self-reproductive movement of nature, you are still enslaved to nature. You are not truly free. And then came the idea to Sarah of what he calls second death. That a true crime is not just a crime which is part of this circular movement of nature. I give you another child is born, but the radical crime should aim at, to, at interrupting this very cycle, you know. You are not part of natural circular movement. You want to stop it. And what is so shocking, read it closely, is that when, it's I think in the book five of Juliet, where the Pope gives a long explanation of the Southern system, when he describes this, it's shocking to what extent he uses the exact terms that Kant uses for an ethical method. That it should be done for any pleasure, and especially, you know, for Kant, ethical act is a free act. Why? Because it's no longer part of what Kant calls pathological motivations. For Kant, pathological means motivated by empirical, factual reasons. For example, if you do something for a certain empirical cause, to gain, even to appear honest to others, whatever, even if it's very sublime, it's pathological. A free act is done just for the sake of it. And uh, 
So, uh, but Chad defines in the very same terms the act of radical evil. That you just do it for the sake of it, not for. And uh, now comes the true art of reading Kant. If you read Kant through this insight, you discover wonders. You do not discover only the obvious uh, links or hints which point at Sartre. For example, you know in metaphysics there is a metaphysics of customs rather than morality. When Kant, you must know this, defines marriage, he provides a definition which was the shock to everyone, Hegel included. I love it. He says marriage is a contract between two. Uh, maybe the nice girl there has the right to leave exactly at this moment when I enter the prohibited topic. Yes. This is the definition of marriage is the contract. Oh my God, she looked back now. Uh, the contract between two adults about mutual use of their sex organs for the purpose of pleasure. Nothing about sacred union, children, or whatever, you know. Uh, so, now you think Kant is joking there. Look at the next page, my favorite in all Kant, where Kant asks if a man runs away from his wife, does she have the right to bring him back by police? Kant says yes, but not for any spiritual reason, because according to marriage contract, she, he ran away with a part of his body which was contractually linked to, to her, which is peace, you know. That's why it's not some noble marriage. No, you run away with a part which belongs to me, which is reserved to my use. So Kant was a strange guy here, you know. But uh, let's go on. One of the, I more and more admire two late books by Kant. One is, of course, his anthropology, where you discover a Kant which is uncannily close to Pascal, not the Kant of this inner ethics, but precisely the Kant of explain, fake it till you make it. You know, Kant says, if you are immoral, act as if, imitate that there is hope that you will fall into your own trap and really become moral, but the other kind, the religion within the limits of reason alone, where Kant briefly entertains the notion of radical evil. Uh, no, that's the whole point. First, he plays with the notion of what he calls diabolical evil, and then he abandons it and quickly changes to radical evil. But you know why? Because he notices implicitly that what he calls diabolical evil is indistinguishable from his definition of moral act of the good. Why? It is evil and it plays, plays a crucial role in, even it begins even with John Milton. You know when Saint Milton says, uh, says uh, evil be thou my good. That is to say that you posit evil as your ethical goal. But why is this radical evil? Because uh, you don't do it for any pathological reasons. Kant plays with the idea of doing, being evil, 
not because you want to profit, money, fame, uh, 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 women, sex, uh, power over others, but just for the sake of it. If you have small children, I have a brief theory that, from my experience at least, they come close to radically even between five and six in those years, you know. When they are small, they still do it because they want it. They want your coffee toy, they grab it. After six, seven, they already also become egotistic again. But there is a period somewhere there when they just, for the sake of it, they just like to, like my small son, when he was five, we had an old grandma who was barely walking and uh, he pushed her down the stairs. And he didn't want, quite in a Kantian way, he didn't want to apologize. He said, no, I did it, why? Because I wanted to do it. Absolutely insisted on no. So, so you, you see my point. Kant is afraid then to admit this, that if you define moral act as a non-pathological act, as act of following a universal rule, maxim, which you do just for the sake of it, then what about radical evil? And uh, again, he then, for totally mysterious reasons, all of a sudden claims that no, we cannot, it's not possible with us humans, it would have been too much, and he replaces his story, the notion of diabolical evil, with the notion of radical evil, which is much softer. It simply means that it's inscribed into our human nature a propensity towards evil, that we cannot ever get rid of it. But you see, he meant something uh, much more, much more precise. Here, I think Schelling and Hegel go much further. For example, Schelling already has in his, you should read it, this is Heidegger claim, this is the greatest text of all German idealism. Schelling's Freiheitsschrift, his treatise on human freedom and some other things and so on, and uh, related things, where Schelling has a wonderful insight of how evil, at its most elementary, is not succumbing to material temptation. That, as he puts it, evil is more spiritual than good. Radical evil is precisely <coughs> pure spirit brutally manipulating all material elements and so on and so on. The evil has this pure, pale spiritual uh, coldness and so on and so on. Schelling also develops an idea which is, I think, extremely important. This idea which, which you already find in Kant of how, even if our, of how we are responsible for our character, as it were. We do something which may appear that we do it because of our nature, but we are nonetheless even if we were predestined to do it from the very beginning, we nonetheless have to, uh, we are nonetheless fully responsible for it. Because, and here we find an almost Freudian wonderful idea that our decisions, free decisions, are not necessarily conscious decisions. That uh, the most radical free decisions, we are never aware of them. All of a sudden, they are already here. And I will give you another example, which is for me an evil fact, but the greatest. Falling in love 
Don't, didn't you notice this? You never can say, now I am falling in love. Love should be a free act. You cannot be ordered to fall in love. But at the same time, you are never in the position to say, okay, how should I, to whom should I fall in love? Let me look around. A lady there, sorry, make sure it's a lady there, a lady there, okay, and then you compose what? A list, you know. I like her legs, her gaze, I like her hair, her, um, I don't know, eyes, and then I compare it up, up, this one has more points. No, you never do this. Isn't it that you are not in love, maybe it's even hatred, and all of a sudden you become aware, and that's crucial, temporality, temporality, that you already are in love. And maybe, this is the wonderful suspicion of Schoening, maybe our ultimate three decisions are all, are all like this. Did I use this year here? Because I have another ultimate example of this. The example of the military conscript in <coughs> Yugoslavia. You were here all the time, do you remember it? A letter and so on. No, oh, and I didn't tell it with pleasure. It's a wonderful, crazy example. Didn't I use it here? Are you sure? It's the story interrupt me at any moment. It's the story about a friend of mine who was at the time when I did it late service, I did it a little bit earlier, had to serve the army, which of the universal conscription in ex-Yugoslavia. And what he did was this. You know, first you are two weeks doing military service, then you confront, then you have this ritual. All new soldiers are gathered there and they all have to repeat the usual bullshit, you know. I swear that I will give even my life, everything, for the freedom of my... whatever. And then you become fully a soldier. Okay, this friend of mine did this. After this, each soldier had, of course, signed his name into some big book that is official. When he approached the officer who had this book, this friend of mine, and he wasn't laughing because I have the document. I will tell you immediately which document this is. He approached them and said, the officer said, is this oath that I took here, and now I have to sign it, is it obligatory or not? The officer told him, no, of course it's not obligatory, then it's meaningless, it must be your three decision. Then my friend soldier said, okay, then I don't do it, then I don't sign it. Then the officer started to shout at him, are you crazy, you will be arrested, and so on. And then, now comes the beauty. They debated it for some five, ten minutes, and you know what happened at the end? The officer was really stupid because he did something that should be impossible. He gave to this soldier a paper where he, officer, orders him to freely sign. <laughs> this is a pure document of ideology. And let me be very clear. I'm not saying here that this is a totalitarian mechanism. No, 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 there were other much worse totalitarian mechanisms in ex-Yugoslavia and so on. This is, I think, something which always defines our belonging to a certain community. You have a choice, but this choice is this. You have a certain freedom, which is 
always already used, you know, like you are free to choose, but you are never given a moment where you really can choose. Like you have a freedom of choice only if you already make the radical choice. And it's interesting how when this was years ago, Yugoslavia was here relatively liberal, when people, when uh, communists granted total freedom of divorce. And some conservatives provided the best argument that I've heard against divorce. It repeats this paradox. It says, of course you have the freedom to divorce. But once you get married, you abandon, you know, you forsake, you already use this freedom. Like it's a wonderful paradox. You have it, but never now. You always already used it. Uh, so again, what I'm trying to tell you here is something much uh, more complex than just a joke. Is that far from being simple, funny excesses, these paradoxes signal again something which again, uh, defines our very basic fact of belonging to certain communities. Yes? Would that be unconscious? The unconscious? That it's I am afraid to use these words here because, you know, the problem is what is really unconscious? It's clear, I agree here with Lacan, that uh, uh, unconscious is uh, much more, it's not simply there is something deep in me or what beyond my God. Uh, what is unconscious? Uh, and I, I know now that I use this example here, namely the example of perversion. Unconscious is not that secret content that you are not aware. Uh, perverts absolutely enact shamelessly the dirtiest fantasies, but as Freud puts it, it's the most difficult case to penetrate the unconscious are the perverts. Precisely because, you know, this is also the basic lesson of psychoanalysis. This is why Freud abandoned hypnosis and all that. Because the point is not just to tell you whatever the vulgarity is, you know, to tell you how, how you want to kill your father, sleep with your mother. It doesn't work. Something else has to be done. Okay, we can generally say what has to be done is that you don't just rationally agree, but you really subjectively assume it. But it's, I claim, even, uh, it's even more complex. So, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, look, there is a wonderful argument of Isaac. Hans Isaac, his dad was a great positivist psychologist, very critical of psychoanalysis. And he discovered something wonderful. He thought this is the devastating blow to against psychoanalysis. He says, Freud claims that our desires, the desires articulated in dreams, are generally of sexual nature and unconscious. And then he says, but let's look at a dream which should be considered paradigmatic, typical, because Freud refers to this dream at the very beginning of his interpretation of dreams as the model dream, dream that he uses to introduce it. It's of course the dream about Irma's injection. 
And Isaac quite correctly notices that the desire articulated, the wish articulated in this dream, the desire of Freud to get rid of his failure in treatment of one of her patients, Irma, that this desire is absolutely not unconscious. My God, this bothered him day and night. He felt responsible for it. <coughs> and it's definitely, at least the research is not sexual. You know, so what is it? Did Freud not know what he is doing? Ah, here things get more complicated. Because the Freudian, where do you find in a dream the unconscious? Things get here wonderfully complex. It's not simply that you have the text of the dream, texture, explicit texture, the shitty story, whatever, and then the so-called dream thought, the message of the dream. The paradox is much nicer for Freud. You have a certain daily concern, which is the thought of the dream. In this case, I screwed it up, it's horrible, by treatment of Irma. Then, in a ciphered way, you translate your unconscious, whatever, translates this into the texture of the dream. No, what Freud calls Traumarbeit, the translation of the dream thought into the texture, explicit texture of the dream. But it's precisely through this translation that the unconscious describes itself. You know, like, for example, let me take a simple example. You, like in Freud, Freud wanted to get rid of it and he, with his responsibility, and he translated it into this dream image. But what he discovers there, Freud, no, sorry, but what you find in the dream texture is so full of obscene associations, you see what, that there, yeah, two unconscious penetrates. What does this mean? Let me give you a, 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 a... So, the paradox is that the very process of covering up, of ciphering the message, the very process of obfuscating the thought of the dream brings in the unconscious. Here, think, here, think, again, here things get then wonderfully complicated and so on and so on. So again, Lacan was fighting all the time with this, like, uh, where is effectively the unconscious, no? It's definitely not some kind of a primordial, instinctual universe where whatever. Lacan insisted to the end that the unconscious is ultra-rational. The unconscious is uh, uh, a matter of vernunft, of reason. That's why Kant's, uh, sorry, one of, not Kant, of course, one of Lacan's great texts says precisely uh, uh, la raison, the reason in Freud, in Freudian unconscious, la raison, in the sense that, again, it's not naive and so on. It's not that unconscious is more primitive. It's even, in a way, more reflexive, more rational, in the sense that, you see, this is, there is another crucial definition to be made here. Between unconscious, sorry, the definition between desiring something and desiring to desire it, 
we can, you know, the best definition of femme fatale in film bar, you know, is uh, that you hate yourself for desiring her, hate to love, like she is there, it attracts you, you know she will be a catastrophe, you love her, but you hate to love her, but you cannot help it. Then we have the nice opposite, love to hate, isn't this the whole point of great bad guys in, in films? You hate them, but my God, you love to hate them. And then there are other possibilities to the end, maybe the only, I don't believe in direct innocent love, Maybe the best definition of love is that you hate to hate someone. You still hate him or her, but you hate yourself for hating. Maybe that's as close as we can come to love. And the opposite. If you love to love someone, if somebody tells you, I love to love you, run away. That's hatred and so on. So you see, the unconscious is precisely this higher dimension. I love you. What I'm not conscious of is that I hate or don't love to love you and so on. It's more, this is my problem with Robert Pippin, who in another of his books, when he attacks psychoanalysis as still being too rarefied, is if there is out there the unconscious as some substantial psychic content which determines our reflexive freedom. No, unconscious is not more immediate rational. Unconscious is even more uh, is even more reflected in this way, you know. And that's that the entire problem of how to read Lacan to Freud, Freud uh, or Freud to through Lacan. Maybe I should conclude with this. For example, uh, for Lacan, the most elementary definition of the unconscious is uh, is. Uh, something like, uh, you know, the discourse of the other. Yeah, okay, but what did he mean by this? It's not simply, it's not me, it's the other who is talking through me. No, the is totally opposed to this, this easy excuse, you know, like, and I don't know, I do something horrible to you, and then I tell you, sorry, it wasn't me, it was the other who, you know. I mean, even when I was young, I always liked, jokes about psychiatrists, you know. Like, one was that you go to a psychiatrist and he diagnoses you have a double self, you know. And the then at the end, when you have to pay him, he said, okay, I will pay you half, let the other self pay you. <laughs> and the deepest one, I use it in my early books, deeply true is, you know, the thing about the crocodile and the guy. Okay, a guy has a phobia of crocodiles. He thinks that there is a crocodile beneath his bed, no? And goes to the psychiatrist, by psychiatrist, they analyze it, blah, blah, blah. And finally, psychoanalyst convinces the guy that there is, that this was his fantasy, there is no crocodile beneath his bed. So, okay, he's cured, the psychoanalyst no longer sees the guy, but a couple of months later, the psychoanalyst meets on the street a good friend of this guy and ask him, my God, I haven't seen him for months, what happened to that guy? You imagine what his friend answers. Ah, you mean the one who was eaten by the crocodile? You <laughs> <laughs> need his bed. I mean, there is a big message in it about the efficiency of, uh, of symptoms, uh, uh, and so on and so on. So what I want to say is this. Uh, 
The first difference is the beautiful difference between, uh, in the notion of truth, the difference between what I'm saying is true and the truth speaks. What I'm saying is true refers to the, let's call it naively, objective content of my speech. If you say what I'm saying is true, it simply means a predicate. True is a predicate here. It means, I don't know, we are in Princeton. Oh, you look around, yes, what I'm saying is true. But if you say that the truth speaks through me, it's something different, but radically ambiguous. That is to say, on the one hand, it can mean the symbolic authority, like the judge can, a judge can say truth in the sense of social order, legality, speaks through me. So even if I am bullshitting, nonetheless, truth speaks through me. You know where you find this nice example? In Russian, they have... Yeah, yeah, Istina and Pravda. Istina is more, maybe I'm wrong, if you know, factual truth. Pravda is the deeper truth. No wonder that the main Soviet daily was not Istina, but it was Istina Pravda. is scientific and Pravda is political. Yes, scientific, but it's a strange science, you know, because it's this type of science. For example, there are workers striking, striking and police beat them savagely and arrested them. And I want to publish this in a newspaper. And they will tell you, it may be Istina, but in the present political constellation, it would serve the enemy. So in a deeper sense, you know, it's not true. So uh, we have in this sense truth, which more refers to some authentic subjective position. We have this opposition. But Lacan is aiming at something slightly different here, I claim. It's not in this sense that we have that truth is this higher authority. And even, even with American Christian fundamentalists, you have this. Alenka uh, Sofarkic, uh, I wonder if she mentioned this here, she found some fundamentalist sites where they claim that a true Christian is ready to, they, they call it lying for Jesus. <laughs> for example, they claim, and this is where they use it, in Slovenia, even it happens. Fundamentalists were engaged in, of course, against abortion, and uh, they referred to some alleged medical research which demonstrates how it can have for the woman herself that medical consequences and so on and so on. And when they were caught lying, referring that those researchers didn't really say this, they used this lying for Jesus argument. Like, okay, maybe factually it was wrong, but it served a higher true cause. We pre prevented another genocide. You know this beautiful logic of fundamentalists where they claim our big sin was killing six million Jews. But what about the hundreds of millions of children killed in abortion? That's the true Holocaust. What about this and so on? So again, to present this. Uh, so, uh, uh, but uh, for Lacan, 
Lacan also uses this term pathetically in his Ecri, where he says, Man, listen, I tell you the secret. I, truth, speak. And then he goes on. The discourse of error could be witness to the truth against the apparent facts themselves. Whether you flee me in deceit or think you can catch me in error, I will catch up with you in the mistake from which you cannot hide. What Lacan, it's pretty elementary what he wants to say here, that sometimes in what is at the level of facts not true, can be true, but not in this manipulative way, you know, we deny gulag uh, uh, to say the idea of communism, but in a much more beautiful and tricky way that it's precisely into what is an empirical lie that the truth about you, your subjective stance, where is your desire, like, inscribed, like, let me tell you, they are too simple, things are much more elaborate, but the most stupid example, you know, where this typical slip of tongue mentioned even by Freud. I'm supposed to moderate some uh, boring debate, and instead of saying at the beginning, I thereby open the debate, I say, I thereby close the debate. <laughs> okay, I was wrong, but fuck it, you learn a lot from this mistake of mine. What is, and that was Freud's point that uh, obsessional neurotics, their specialty is to lie in the guise of factual truth, in the sense of what is factually true. You know, for example, an obsessional neurotic, usually what he says is factually true, but the truth is used to, for a lie, for a lie in your subjective attitude, while hysterics are more or less the opposite. Even when they lie, through the very form of lie, truth returns. So Lacan's position is here wonderfully dialectical. In the same way, I already developed this here, I think. In the same way that, and I know I've spoken about this here, that uh, Jouissant's full enjoyment, it's not only impossible, that would be this negative theological uh, Lacan, the worst part, at the same time, you cannot reach it, but you cannot escape it. No, because no matter how you want to escape it, it catches up with you. I, I think already mentioned even here that the ridiculous example, like you are traumatized by sex, you are in puberty, don't know how, so you escape into mathematics or physics. And then what happens there? You get a task. How much energy is released when two bodies teach each other? <laughs> you are there. You know, like, it returns. You know, you cannot escape. It sticks to it. But the same goes for Lacan for truth. Like, you think the problem is not just... People usually quote just that Lacan, the postmodern Lacan, uh, la vérité, on a la dire. You can just half say it. You cannot say the whole truth. No, but there is another side, which is you, but you also cannot escape the truth. And to conclude, I will give you uh, a wonderful example from, I use example from so-called totalitarian ideologies. The it always fascinated me. The practice of architecture under Stalinism. You know, officially this was a highly developed society, freedom and so on. 
But the truth was out there staged in architecture. First, if you look at the typical palace, it was done like this, that more and more the lower floors where people actually were, were dwarfed by some gigantic statues and so on. I mean, if you were just to say this message loudly, we allegedly dedicate ourselves to the big new idea of a new math, but effectively we are more and more crushed by this idea. If you say this, then people would be asking who saw you the last class, or they will be getting postcards from Gulaki. <laughs> but you know, but you were even forced to stage this truth out there in, in architecture. No wonder that, you know, like, this is why, what, why I still like Sergei Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible. It's ambiguous, but it is as if he staged there the whole terrifying ambiguity of the, of the Stalinist regime and so on and so on. He must really have been crazy to do that thing. Because you find it now, they discover the complete scenario also for part three. Part three. You know, there are two, maybe there are others, two that I know of absolute mega, I hope you will have a heart attack. No. Sorry, that's wrong. I thought you have. <laughs> I always live in fear of, you know. I, I, when my friends do a gesture like this, I always tell them, drop that and then I promise you, we will so sincerely more of you and so on. Sorry, let me go on. There are two mega tragedies in history of cinema. Of course, Orson Welles, Magnificent Anderson's, read at the scenario, and you know what's the tragedy there? It was done, finished, 2020. Then, they sent Orson Welles to Brazil to do some stupid pro-war documentary, and they cut it short to 88 minutes, by even cutting some, by even adding some stuff, so they cut even more. Okay, we're going to it, and the second mega-tragedy is, I think, that Eisenstein wasn't able to finish his Ivan Ivan the Terrible. No, it's really, it has, how to put it, it's in a way more horrifying than explicit critique of Stalinism, because we all know this, you know, the art is not just to tell the factual truth, but is it fair to undermine the truth from within? I know we have almost to go now, so just my last example, maybe you know it, I'm sorry. When I was half dissident, not, not really, maybe you know it, years ago, I was in my 20, no, years ago, uh, I, I was part of a small student newspaper, like half dissident, it was still tolerated. There were elections in ex-Yugoslavia, communist overwhelmed, or, uh, uh, always small. Okay, it was not as bad as uh, in the uh, Soviet Union where communists always got 98, 99%. With us, communists were satisfied with like 80%. But they always, so we said, what should we do? Should we publish an issue denouncing these as false elections? No, everyone knew this. We did something much more naive. We didn't tell the truth. We just insisted too much on the lie. The lie was that these are free elections. So the idea was, let us treat them as if they are free elections. So we printed an extraordinary issue of the journal where we, we it was big title. 
latest news, it looks that communists will remain in power, will win. You know, and with all them so furious, they immediately uh, asked us to come to Central Committee. Okay, this wasn't true Stalinism, so we didn't drink, but a guy there was shouting at us, boys, why are you doing this? Then you just ask him, what are you uh, approaching us with? We just treat this as really free elections. What did we do wrong? <laughs> and it was so tragic because the guy couldn't say publicly, you fucking know that they weren't free. <laughs> so he just said, don't mess with me. Don't fuck with me. You know very well what I mean. And he said, please tell us. <laughs> you see my point about telling the truth. This, we didn't say openly the truth, these are not free elections. But this was a much more efficient way to do it. So, fuck you, Syria, today. <laughs> on Wednesday at 4.30 in this room. Uh, the Troika will have a whole thing on the end times, and I hope you'll join us. Thanks for coming. Thanks for letting me know the title. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah.